What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Blue Mountain Village Voices. Hi, everyone. Joining us today is Chris Bluer, the new president and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario. TIO is an advocacy group that represents the needs of our diverse tourism industry at Queen's Park in Ottawa and in communities across Ontario. Prior to joining the TIO team, Chris spent 15 years working in political campaigns and communications for the House of Commons in the United Kingdom and was elected four times as a city councillor for his hometown in the West Midlands. I also learned through this interview that Chris was quite the footballer. Chris joins us during Tourism Week to talk about the economic impact of COVID-19, the tourism industry recovery, and he shares insight on what lies ahead. Chris's central message is that we have to work together now more than ever. Enjoy. I'm really pleased to welcome Chris Bloor with us today. Chris, congratulations on your new role at Tile, the new president and CEO. Thank you. And thank you ever so much for inviting me to have this conversation with you this afternoon. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. You know, we've worked very closely with Tayo for many years and particularly through the pandemic. I can't express enough how grateful we have been to yourself, the team, the board and all the members for the great support you've provided us. Uh, sometimes when you're in a small community and you're outside of the orbit of some of the large centers, you may not feel that you get support from uh, associations, but Tayo has been with us every step of the way and really supportive. So we appreciate that. As we get started, we have a tradition here at the Blue Mountain Village Voices podcast where we start by asking people about their career. You have quite an impressive uh, resume in advocacy and serving communities and local government. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your career story. First off, Andrew, it's very kind of you to say it's impressive. Uh, there are, it is. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I'm not so sure about that. But um, yeah, I've been really fortunate um, in my professional career to work with both some really inspirational people, uh, some great mentors uh, and some people who have always been willing to lift me up and give me opportunities to serve or, or, or to progress. And so um, I am only in the position that I am now because of A, the Tayo team who have been amazing over this last 14 months and because of the people that I've worked with along this journey. But um, I guess uh, like most uh, little boys in back in the UK, as you can tell from my accent, I'm British. Uh, whilst most people might hear, might dream of being a, a hockey player, I dreamt of being a, a football player or soccer player for the audience at home. And uh, I spent most of my youth uh, playing at a decent level of football in the UK. And it wasn't until I got into my teens that sport wasn't going to be sort of like the way I was going to make a living in life. And uh, I suddenly got to the age of 16 or 17 and unfortunately wasn't quite as good as I thought I could be. And so I started looking at what, you know, crikey, what would I do going forward? And I was fortunate because I'd always sort of taken school fairly seriously and uh, developed an interest in the humanities subjects. And so had that panic moment. I'm not so sure if it's the same here where I had to arrange work experience and uh, go and learn something on the trade for a couple of weeks. And all of the first things that I sort of identified of, of wanting to do journalism, law, solicitor sort of stuff didn't work out. And uh, I ended up 
uh, sort of clerking for a member of parliament in the region that I lived in, uh, I think we all see members of parliament as, as as important people, important advocates in our communities, and, uh, as the same here as it is back home. And uh, I spent two weeks with a, a member of parliament called Estelle Morris in, in Birmingham in the West Midlands, and my world was just completely blown uh, away by how much, uh, you know, to be quite frank, how much good and progress she could deliver in her community whilst in the constituency herself, but also when she was in London representing the constituency in the Houses of Parliament. And I kind of had already always kind of had my own political views on issues and my mom and dad had brought me up a certain way. And so I really got interested in politics at that point. You know, my mom and dad were great. They said, you know, work out what you won't believe and we're not going to uh, make make you support the political party that we support and have done all their lives. And uh, that kind of was the sort of start of it. And uh, uh, in the area that I lived in, it was sort of dominated by one party. And for the first time, I was the candidate for the alternative party. And uh, hooker by crook, uh, I ended up winning the the local election at the very local community level there. And uh, that sort of uh, sparked my interest in working in the community, advocacy. I'm a big believer that by coming together, we can achieve a lot more than we do alone. Uh, and that's that's followed me throughout my career. And ever since that sort of initial work experience, that initial election in my home village, I was then fortunate enough to work for uh, some ministers of the UK government, uh, various MPs across the region, uh, learned to appreciate the differences between our rural uh, and our urban centres learnt about the importance of our relationships with other countries. Uh, and then I was really fortunate uh, in the hometown uh, of Bromsgrove, where I lived, to be uh, elected to represent us in the in the, the city council. And I was re-elected four times and uh, I ended up having to resign just a year or so before my final, uh, final term because... Uh, my wife had been successful in getting a job here. We'd, we'd fallen in love in, with Ontario on a few visits before. Uh, initially, we'd planned to sort of, uh, she would be over here. We were going to get an apartment or condo and I would see out my turn back home in the UK. But actually decided, you know, listen, um, I couldn't be away from my wife. Uh, I resigned. And so that's long distance. It is. And, you know, at first it sounded like it would it, it could work, but then, then it didn't. But no. Andrew, I've been really fortunate to work with some great uh, representatives of all parties, of all stripes. And uh, I just find advocacy, working for people who don't feel like they have a voice, is something that is really rewarding. There are a lot of big challenges and systematic barriers to people's aspirations that still exist in our society. And, uh, you know, I've just been fortunate to have been brought up in a very... Uh, secure and stable environment and there haven't been barriers to me to be able to succeed and I'm just really conscious that some of the people that I, I, I grew up with didn't have those same opportunities however smart or however able they were so uh, I've been really fortunate to uh, you know today um, I got a note from one of my old constituents back home to say it was seven years uh, today since we reopened a brand new community centre back home and where I used to live and I was part of the team that raised the money, that got planning permission and got that built. And so the idea that there are things, I'm not a big believer in having names on things, but the fact that I have my name on that community center is something I'm incredibly proud of. I probably, it's the version of, it's the political version of the Oscars for me. And so uh, it's, it's great to think that there are things still there and providing joy and adding to the community that I was part of. So yeah, very fortunate, been very fortunate, you know, over my entire career to be able to be in a position to do that. Well, congratulations. And I think those are examples of 
a great way to to leave an impact and to and to lead by example. I mean, you said that what matters is how you can be helpful to others, and your legacy there is a community center where people get to continue to enjoy that. So that must be very rewarding. I think for those who who come from the tourism world, understanding your particular experience balancing rural and urban, I think that is really important, and I think that's a really it's really going to help you well in uh, in working in Ontario, continuing to work in Ontario, because that's such a dynamic that we have here is that you know, needs in the urban context and needs in the rural. And we'll get into that a little later. But I also want to share a little, you know, something we have in common in that uh, I, too, uh, discovered early that soccer was not going to be my career. But unfortunately, <laughs> it happened much earlier than you. It would have been my first game. <laughs> When I scored on our own net twice, and that was the end of my soccer career. But, but nonetheless, um, you know we're 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 lucky to have you here, and glad that your your wife brought you here, and uh, and that you've been able to be such a, an, an integral part of this tourism community that we have. All right, let's let's jump right into it. Tell us a little bit about how tourism impacts Ontario's economy. What are, what are the measures that that we use to to assess how impactful it is? That's a great question, Andrew. And I think one of the things that we've learned from this crisis is that actually the tourism industry, something that you know, something that your members know, and, some, and something that the people who, who visit uh, your region a lot know, is that actually tourism is an integral part of our, our economy. And during this crisis, the visitor economy, whether it's in our urban centres and downtowns or our regional economies and local ones, have been so heavily affected and impacted uh, by what the restrictions on movement, the restrictions on gathering, uh, it's impossible not to see how wide and varied that impact is and it's it, it's, it's an impact on uh, uh, next door uh, uh, industries and, and other industries as well you know the retail mm-hmm. industry has had a massive impact uh, and it goes across so many different uh, parts of our economy and I think that has surprised some politicians and decision makers how far our reach is um, you know when you attract people to your destination and attractions you those people don't just spend money where you are they spend money to get there they spend money in the sure. shops around you know it's a whole ecosystem and you know the numbers that are touted for uh, tourism in Ontario 36 37 billion dollars in economic activity four five hundred thousand jobs two hundred thousand businesses I suspect we've got what we're going to learn now is is that that they were they were slightly lowball numbers and that that it's even higher but also just how integral it is to those other parts of the economy and I think one of the things that I've and we've tried to position tourism as moving forward is that we can't just be on the periphery of economic and domestic policy setting moving forward. We have to be at the heart of it moving forward. And one of the things that, you know, Andrew, you very kindly joined us at, uh, Tourism Day at Queen's Park as part of the Tayo delegation. You were very eloquent and very uh, not just putting forward your members' points of view, but the wider tourism industry as a whole, is that whether it's our infrastructure and transport, whether it's affordable housing, whether it's about training and skills and development, tourism has a part to play in all of these different aspects of policy development. And so whilst a lot of people focus on the big numbers, the $36 billion, the 400,000, 500,000 jobs, actually it's like Tourism is and hospitality and, and service work is at the very center of our economy and other economy and other parts of our economy just can't function without it. And so there's a dependency there. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the message I'm trying to get across in, in this leadership role now. And I know that you do as well every day, is that 
as we move forward, we have to future-proof better than we have done in the past. We have to have policies ready in place and economic packages in place if this happens again, and God forbid that it doesn't, but you know, pandemics might be with us for a while moving forward. Um, but I really want people to think of tourism the same way they do as the automobile industry. You know, We are so much bigger than the car manufacturing industry in Ontario, yet uh, people uh, don't view us on the, the same level footing of it as importance to our economy. And you know, I'll give credit to the provincial government. They have really stepped up in terms of our access to be able to speak to them, understanding the size of the industry and the impact that's happened because, you know, um, our industry was hit well before the declaration of emergency was declared in Ontario. Uh, we were hit uh, at the back end uh, of the previous year. Uh, cancellations, uh, international cancellations were happening throughout January and February. Domestic group bookings were, were cancelled or uh, postponed. And so we've really had this for a year and a half now. And so um, if, uh, you know, as, a, as an industry nationwide, we're one in 10 of every jobs. We're over 100 billion in economic activity. We see what other countries are doing to restart their tourism economies. Tourism needs to be on that same uh, level playing field at the heart of economic discussions moving forward. And so, yeah, to answer your question, uh, we're a major part of the economy. We're a major source of jobs and we're a major source of innovations and skills development. Sometimes we just fall under the radar. And I think it's because as consumers, when we think of tourism or travel, we might think about that one trip a year we take and we're seeing the, the, the guest experience or the storefront side when we don't often see everything that comes behind it. So I guess that's our job is to, to educate and, the, you know, this is stuff that Tayo is doing a great job on. What, so now that we've sort of established kind of what the economic stakes are, um, I wonder if you can share with me from your perspective, kind of what are the biggest challenges right now? So we're a year and a bit in on the pandemic. Um, what are the biggest challenges we have to, we have to overcome? So let's say in the next six months. Well, that's the $36 billion question, Andrew. <laughs> and it's a good question to ask uh, in the immediacy. And you know, this is something we've talked about is that economic solvency issue affecting many of our businesses. Uh, as you refer, refer to, this has been over a year now of plunging revenues, increased fixed costs. Many of your members will have spent money to get themselves ready to be COVID-19 ready. And we had that small summer summer period that we had. So solvency uh, debt levels have increased rapidly within our members and within the industry across the board since since last March. And, you know, for the first time, uh, the, the biggest fear that business owners have said to us and operators to their business, for the first time, uh, it hasn't been cash flow. Uh, it's been levels of debt that their business uh, faces, which is uh, hugely concerning because, you know, whilst the federal programs have been incredibly important, many of them have been loans, uh, whether it's Hascap or Sebra. And so moving forward, um, and, you know, thankfully, Tyak are doing this on a national level. And so are many other our organizations. And we've got to touch on the amazing collaboration of all the organizations involved. But um, solvency remains that big, big, big issue for me moving forward, because the biggest tragedy would be is if we get to have a proper season, we go into 2022. Uh, I, I don't want to say back to normal life, but looking very similar to normal life. If those businesses aren't there to recoup the benefits, because our government, uh, both provincially and federally and, and on the local government level, need our taxes. They need our economic contribution. They need to stop the economic supports. So it's within their interest to make sure that we're in that position to do that. And so uh, particularly on the federal level right now, we've just had some programs 
programs announced by the provincial government, and we've got some more coming in the pipeline. But on the federal level, we're you know trying to get SUEs extended further. We're trying to get forgivable elements to really help with that solvency issue. The next issue is the re-education and the reaff- the reassurance of uh, of our consumers. Mm. Um, you know, for a very long time, they've been told, "Don't do this." Don't don't form this group. Don't uh, go inside to eat or drink. And so that re-education uh, uh, marketing stroke communications program is going to be so important in the short and medium term. Reassuring, you know, you've seen the same consumer sentiment information that I've seen. There is there is real hesitancy to to get back involved. There's that pent up aggression. I'm really loving this phrase revenge spending. There's something very. <laughs> There's something very Hollywood about that. And, uh, you know, if you told me, Andrew, that you were open this weekend, I'd be you know, fully open. I would be spending a lot of money at your, at your, <laughs> in Blue Mountain because I would love to, but it's pent up demand, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That pent up demand is there. So making sure that, uh, that people are in the position to do that, but that critical pathway to reopening, uh, you know, we've seen some of the provinces start to release their plans. Great news that Ontario is starting to, uh, release some of its information about what it might be announcing on June 2nd in terms of outdoor uh, amenities, but also about what it plans to sort of allow to happen on a stage-by-stage process over the summer. You know, that's really encouraging. And, you know, I'm really hopeful that that's going to be in place soon because those metrics on when businesses are going to be able to reopen, those certainties, both financially, uh, but to make the decisions about hiring staff are so important. So, uh giving consumers the confidence that they're that, that we're going to be open and that they're going to be safe to visit. And let's be clear, they will be. Uh, the effort and the money that's been pumped in to adapt businesses, to train the staff has been phenomenal. Our industry has led on the uh, innovation to, to on that part. Um, so to answer your question, solvency is definitely the first one. I want to make sure our businesses are there to to reap the rewards. Uh, I also want us to address the resonance sentiment. But, but then in the long term, we still have big challenges on labor shortages you know we had a big labor shortage problem before COVID-19 it's been uh, made even worse by the situation that we found ourselves in because many people have lost their jobs they don't see our industry as a as a secure living for them or their family and so we've got to really tackle that uh, moving forward because we simply you know some of the numbers on on the viewpoints that workers have of our industry are pretty frightening moving forward and we need to really uh, try and take that on and reassure people about you know this has been a once in a lifetime event and uh, we need to do more on that but then you know one of the issues I know that you believe very strongly in is affordable housing, Andrew. Uh, we need to be able to get our workers to be able to live where they work and be able to commute That's right. uh, safely and quickly and, and, and encourage people to, you know, if you can't get to a workplace, you're not going to take up uh, uh, that job. And that affects us because uh, accommodation prices are too expensive right now. And one of the things that we've That's been right. working with uh, with Steve Clark on at, in, in the Ministry of Housing is, you know, we need more we, we, we need more, more affordable homes. And uh, I think that's a challenge that faces many Western democracies moving forward. But for our industry, for our industry, it's super important. And, and you know, it's it's helpful that you, you share this with us, Chris, because sometimes when you're working at the local level, we're dealing with a lot of those challenges and you can sometimes feel like, okay, are we just, are we just alone here? Is this unique to us? What are we not getting right? And I think the aha moment for, for me has been, this is a challenge that, municipalities, provinces are experiencing globally. So for me, it's like, I I look at them as challenges, but also it's our opportunity to get competitive advantage if we can get it right. And if we can do that in advance of some other markets, but it is, it can be very difficult to advance that at a, at a local level when, um, 
you might not have the time to get that input from the bigger picture, the broader community. So I think that's an important lesson for me is reaching out more across the country to see where we can find those uh, best practices, advice going forward. Well, Andrew, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna give you some praise here because I think it's really important that you know I'm sure the people listening to this will know how much work you've done on affordable housing, and it's something that I'm very passionate about taking forward as a key p- pillar of our advocacy moving forward because um, it's just central to our economic futures and and building communities and uh, building good quality housing is just a super important part of that moving forward. Uh, you know, we just can't be in the situation that we are in. And so many of our bigger, you know, I'll, I'll go back to our urban centers right now, but, you know, um, I've spoken to tourism operators and operators of, in other industries who just simply can't get the staff uh, in, into their workplaces because there is just no way they can work in a, uh, live in a downtown area right now. Uh, the, the costs are just frightening. Uh, they, you know, we're letting down a, a large portion of our, our workforce and, and, and our, our young people. Uh, and, you know, and people who have very respectable jobs with very good livings and, and salaries can't afford to buy a house that or, or a condo or apartment that could fit their family uh, safely and, and, and responsibly. And something that's something that we've just just got to get a grip on and uh, we don't have the excuses that we i had back home in the uk where we have a very very small island to work with to, to get many more people in but we have some space here we have some room to grow and i think it's super important that as advocacy organizations we we keep banging the drum on affordable housing and infrastructure and, and and transportation as well. There's been some really positive announcements recently from the provincial and federal government working together to build that infrastructure. And that's something that we've just got to continue with because connectivity and housing to me are sort of the icebergs that we can see very clearly in the water, but we're not quite doing enough yet to deal with them and get out of the way. So Yeah, yeah. and we're, we're definitely seeing at the local level some of that policy work delivering returns. So in the South Georgian Bay area, we were able to expand transit lines from Owen Sound through a few communities into Blue Mountain Village. There's now a transit route. And so some of that policy work is, is working its way down and we're seeing the benefits of that, which is good. So we, we know there's a lot of challenges. Uh, I think, you know, bringing up the solvency one is, is a good one. And I would imagine it's an important one. And I would imagine it must be strange because businesses are generally debt averse. Generally, they want to keep their costs low and they want to mitigate risk. It must be quite a paradigm shift in your mind to have to take on this debt to survive. And I would imagine that's part of the challenge is just the the mental understanding and accepting that that's where you are right now it's multi-layered isn't it have you heard from uh, from some of the businesses how they're coping with that yeah absolutely Andrew. um you know you know from your own operators and the people that you're working with that these these uh, business owners and operators uh, this is just a complete change of course for them and some of the work that we've had to do with businesses during this whole period has been saying listen you're gonna have to take on some debt because this isn't going to be getting better anytime soon. And some of them, it's been such a uh, almost religious experience yeah, to even yeah. consider taking it's on I- Ideological with. sometimes, yeah. Absolutely ideological. And I've had some very dogmatic conversations with operators to say, listen, uh, we need you to get this on, you know, and we're going to be working to make some of it more forgivable at the back end, improve with increased principal payments so that you can pay it off quicker and stuff like that. And they're really ongoing things that we're doing. But no, you're absolutely right because... We, we're working with people who have been very successful for 
decades in some cases. Some people who have never had to rely on the government uh, or, or outside parties for support. And so it's almost uh, like I was insulting some of their families when I was saying, listen, this is support is available now. Take, you know, take the CBA loan. Uh, X amount of it is forgivable um, because they just don't want to do it. They, you know, Many of them had hoped that this was something that we could ride out fairly quickly. And I think we were all under that false impression last year when we arrived into the summer months and we were, you know, at less than three figure cases and uh, COVID, you know, that feels like a world away right now from what we've been living through in the last few months. But no, you're absolutely right, Andrew. Um, whilst we can talk about the incredible innovation that our members have been doing and, and you have been doing, um, we also have to talk about, you know, the challenges, the individual and personal challenges that people have had to take on. And, you know, and we've had many calls uh, with people in tears on the other end of the phone, people ringing very late at night that I'm sure you've had one o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock, not sure if they can apply for something or not sure how to do the, the form. And, you know, I feel like we've been a counseling service as well as an advocacy organization. And that's, that's super important moving forward because these are livelihoods. These are people, their mental health has been, uh, you know, shredded by this whole experience. We've all experienced that on a professional and personal level. And one of the things that I'm really looking forward to do when hopefully we get some good announcements on June 2nd is that I want to get out of Toronto myself uh, and go and meet members, meet them in their premises and in their operations, see how things are, speak to them, you know, pat them on the back, but also talk about how we're going to take on the challenges that are going to happen in the recovery, because I'm really acutely aware that there are going to be further challenges related to COVID moving forward. We're going to need further economic supports and incentives for our industry moving forward. And so I really want to get out of Toronto. I'm excited about it. Uh, my team have put together a campaign tour. Uh, I'm going to see as many members, have as many roundtables as we can safely and socially distancely and really get out and meet these people that, you know, to be quite frank, I've been on video calls for for the last 14 months and haven't actually met yet. So I'm looking forward to getting out. Put us on the list and we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that we can connect you with as many people as possible. So we've talked a lot about some of the challenges and I I know we could, we could take a, we could create a five part series on the challenges right now. You mentioned one important strength and then I want you to talk a little bit about that and then see and share with us if you think there are other strengths that we're bringing. The one strength you mentioned was that this sector is very collaborative. So you have the the national tourism entities working with the provincial, working with subsectors, you know, hotel groups, restaurant groups, uh, outdoor adventure groups working together. I see that as one of our biggest uh, strengths as a as a as an industry. What, what other what other strengths do you think that the tourism industry in Ontario has that will help us overcome some of these remaining challenges? I, well, to be very blunt, Angie, like it's the product that we have. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we have a world-class product uh, in every subsector of our, our industry, in every corner of our province. And uh, not only do we have the traditional attractions and, and resorts and culinary experiences, which uh, blow my mind when I first visited Ontario, uh, but we have, you know, uh, sort of those gig economies, those 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 new authentic experiences. Uh, people are, you know, know signing up to have tours just two of two people at a time to go and see uh, very different uh, experiences than the usual uh, we have uh, we, we just we, we, we just have a burgeoning industry and I think the innovation that's been uh, shown over the last 12 14 months and the growth um, and the adding of strings to the bows of these organizations mm-hmm. is just so important moving forward because people aren't gonna fall back into their usual 
le leisure and tourism habits overnight. And some people really like some of the things that have been uh, created over this point. You know, the drive-in facilities, the pick up your lunch or have it delivered uh, and it becomes an event. You know, yeah, I, I'm going to talk about Blue Mountain later on and some of the amazing things that you've done. Um, but the strength is the product, Andrew. And, 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 and any business knows that your business is built on, uh, on reputation and your product. And that is where Ontario is so well placed because wherever you go, whatever you want to do, there is something available for everybody. And sure. I think uh, one of the biggest challenges that consumers are going to have is deciding what they want to spend their money on uh, when things are freed up. But um, yeah, so product is super important. I'll just touch again on collaboration, Andrew, and I don't want to embarrass you, but you and others have been, you know, at the forefront of coming together as an industry. Uh, you know, we had over 60 people attend Tourism Day at Queen's Park from every uh, industry and every subsector that I could imagine. But we've also made some really key strides with building relationships with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, uh, mm. the uh, CFIB, and those economic organizations and advocacy groups that give us credibility by joining us in our messaging. And that's one thing I've been really uh, happy about in this process is that um, we can speak as one industry and I'm really glad that we're in a position where we can do that. You know, we have some sort of internal differences, but we, we, we managed to get our message to government to be, to be solid and to be, uh, and to be on, to be the same. But when you have the Ontario chamber of commerce, writing letters and doing press releases and statements about our issues, supporting what we're putting forward, that gives us a level of credibility that I don't think we've had before. And that's something that I'm really keen for us to explore. It's something that I'm really keen for us to build on in both a research and advocacy level um, I think that's the key for us to be at the heart of economic policy moving forward is to continue to build our reach um, we have lots of strengths Andrew but the products that that you your members and everyone out there is 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 offering to our our residents and consumers is what when I work very late hours like you do um, I'm confident that when restrictions are lifted we're going to have a really successful period because people like what we have to offer and they're gonna they're eager to get out I'm so glad you raised that, Chris, because it, it it's a it's like a reminder. When you work in these locations and destinations every day, you forget that we are iconic, and yep. it's it's and I say we, I mean all the tourism operators across Ontario. We're iconic. We we you know we've got you know some of these places. You know you think of Algonquin Park and its place in the cultural landscape. You think of you know Blue Mountain as an iconic ski destination. You think of CN Tower, Toronto, Ottawa. I mean the list goes on and on. And I think sometimes when you're in it day to day, you forget. So I'm glad you mentioned that because it is a good reminder and it should keep make people feel a little more confident. Like, no, we we have all the ingredients. It's just a matter of working together and seizing those opportunities. So I'm I'm glad you raised that. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question that's a bit more uh, you know, secret sauce as it relates to advocacy work. So you, you Tayo has been in a very uh, uh, has had to walk a tightrope. So on the one hand, you have to collaborate so closely with the Ministry of Tourism and various ministries. I think you've done such a great job of collaborating with uh, the the levels of government, uh, all different parties. But at the same time, there are times when you have to challenge government and you have to talk about what isn't working. How do you How do you find that balance? How do you do that right? Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. 
If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Well, Andrew, that, that, that's such an important question because at the end of the day, um, even though we have super strong relationships now with the, with the tourism uh, minister uh, and Minister McLeod has been a huge champion of our industry and I can't say that enough. Uh, she she understands uh, our industry. She champions on it. One of the great things that I have really enjoyed about uh, having discussions with the Ministry of Finance and Economic Development is I've heard this already from Minister McLeod, and that's amazing because that means that uh, she's using every avenue that she can to put, put us forward. But yeah, you know, we put forward budget submissions. We've done that both provincially and federally, and sometimes. Uh, what policy comes back isn't quite what we've asked for, doesn't match the sort of uh, dollar amount that we've attached to those programs. On occasion, we have challenged the sort of delivery of some of those programs. And sometimes we get changes and sometimes we don't. And I think what's really important is for us to have credibility is that um, we challenge when we think that there is something wrong uh, and we do it in a courteous and, and evidence-based, uh, evidence-generated-based way. Um, but, but when things are done well, we're also there to credit them and, 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 and give them kudos for what they've done. And, we, and both provincially and federally, we've tried to do that. We've made sure that we, uh, we have the opportunity to go through the detail of a policy before we react to it. Uh, and, and then we, we sort of carry that on uh, in the work that we do. But I think it's really important that members know out there is that our policies and recommendations are built from what our members tell us. They're right. built on our research. They're built on the what is happening on the front line. Last March, when this all happened, we we straight away put our research into the field uh, to collect information on revenue losses, on how many job losses were already happening. And that was basically an essential part of the way the government then built its response. So it's a tightrope, of course it is. We're very fortunate to have both Minister Jolie and Minister McLeod who have uh, given us the opportunity to have our say and see, speak to our members and listen to them at every point. And they know, you know, we, you know, they, they know we're continuously going to be asking for more because we know how important this industry is. Uh, but when I look at some of the dollar amounts that have been attached to the programs in Ontario and compare it to other provinces, I think we have to say that we've done very well comparatively to other provinces. Uh, we're obviously already planning for extra requests for more help, and we're doing that federally right now and trying to extend SUS and trying to extend uh, forgivable elements of HASCAP and uh and uh, the CBA uh, plan, um, but we're being constructive at the same time. We're trying to make it as targeted, targeted as possible. And, you know, we're acutely aware of the pressure that the government and the bureaucracy that has to deliver are under. The, level, the, the amount of legislation that's been pumped out by this government dwarfs you know, the usual four or five years that have preceded. I'm sure. I think our relationship uh, with government is uh, both on the provincial and federal level is based on credibility uh, you know, they understand that we're representing the industry and they know that we're, uh, our recommendations are, are based in facts 
and what needs to happen to support the industry. And that when sometimes um, uh, occasionally a program might fall short or we think it could be tinkered to, to deliver what it's meant to deliver, they respect the fact that we come and tell them that. And uh, I don't think they would want us to be agreeing with everything that they've done because they need our, they need the credibility of us supporting what they're putting forward as well. And so there's an important relationship there. And you know what I have really enjoyed over the last few months, and maybe enjoyed is the wrong word, is that um, we have... Um, we have that relationship now with uh, Minister Beth and Farvey. We have that relationship with Minister Fideli, uh, Monty, uh, Minister Monty McNaughton uh, in, in labour and training and skills. And so um, moving forward, I think we're in such a good position to be able to react to, to, react to future uh, problems uh, because they know we're not going to sugarcoat it to them. And I think that's important to everybody. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I want to leverage that experience for our, for our listeners as well as your experience as a counsellor. I ask specifically because it can be really difficult at the municipal or the regional level for particularly small businesses to engage in politics. They, they rely on municipal governments to approve things, uh, to give them permits, to expand things. And, and oftentimes small businesses will, will just sit back, try to participate as, as they can, but generally they tr- sort of keep a bit of a, um, a quiet profile what smaller businesses and local communities need to do is engage more with their local government and to not be afraid to voice when they're upset about something, but also engage and support. So, you know, when you were a counselor at the municipal level, what were some of the things that small business stakeholders did that, that you could advise to others on, on good strategies to get involved at the political level? I asked the question because it, it can be very challenging at times. We're busy. Small businesses are, you know, they've got a million things to deal with. And at the end of the day, you're, you're trying to chill out and relax and get ready for tomorrow. And the last thing you want to do is read the 150 page, you know, policy document on XYZ uh, municipal bylaw. But we really need to. I think that's a really good question, Andrew. And I know how much work you do on the municipal level to try and build those relationships and have a positive line of communication because, uh, you know, uh, you, your success and, and, and what can be achieved is all linked. And I think that's where I'm going to start this answer is that um, I represented an, a, a relatively uh, urban area. And so I had many, uh, uh, both fact, uh, manufacturing industry within the area that I represented and also large amounts of retail, et cetera. And so one of the things that I like to have was that I had a regular uh, business roundtable for the different sectors that uh, that represented me uh, in my patch. And what I found that really useful to hear from businesses is what is the problem? How is it affecting you? How could you improve uh, your operations? How could you employ more people locally? What are the barriers? Are there issues about transport? There was a very famous issue in the, my in my patch where uh, the bus didn't quite go far enough to get to the factory, and we managed to extend the route and the transport links, and that meant more people were actually uh, accepting job offers from the manufacturing uh, base that was in my patch. And there were simple things that we could do, but I think it's when you come with an issue, also come with a potential solution. And I think that's what uh, councillors and local government, uh, local government are interested in because, you know, politicians have political capital, bureaucrats have very limited time. And if you can bring 
uh, a community together on a shared identification of a problem and a relatively shared idea on how to solve it. And there's community benefit there for not just the businesses, but for the area you represent and, and thus the councillors and the local government, then I think you're going to find it a lot easier to get the results that you need. And, you know, also it's, it's just great to keep in touch so, uh, as much as you can. And remember that politicians are, are humans and so are the bureaucrats and, 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 and treat them in a, in that sort of way. And you'll find that most politicians and most people who work in, in the bureaucracy of a local government took those jobs or ran for office for, for very good reasons, for very uh, personal reasons that they wanted to help their, their local communities and improve their communities. And so sometimes you just have to find the right latch to, to build those relationships and the right things to, to approach people on. Um, you know, I uh, was a very, you know, avid football fan and so uh, people mm-hmm. used to ring me up and talk about football before they went straight into their ask and it's just simple things like that i, I know government gets a hard time uh, because you know it's seen as this entity that is uh, always there to try and stop you doing something or uh, not not support you but actually it's just a collection of people you know we have this strange system in our democracies that we've decided that the best way to solve our problems is to come together to, to look at all the options and then as a community act and legislate. That is all that a council is or a local government is. And so if you can build those personal relationships, put forward solutions to problems, you're going to be successful. And, you know, just think about it from a politician's point of view or a council's point of view. They want extra revenues. They want extra uh, tax bases. They they want their communities to be successful because it's the reason that they ran for office or took the job in the first place. So identify a problem. Bring people together in your community that also think it's a problem. Approach the politicians and the bureaucrats with a solution or, or ideas on how to do it. And I think you'll be 90% of the way there. You, you touched on something that I'm glad you raised. And, and we, I've been having a lot of conversations with folks about how empathy has been really important to us in, in addressing and preparing for the pandemic uh, response. So empathy for our employees, empathy for business owners, empathy for visitors in terms of their frustration yeah. level with protocols. And I, I think sometimes it's easy to look at uh, uh, levels of government without that level of empathy and understanding that they themselves are going through so much at the same time. And we it's hard for us to know. So uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that we've experienced in our market here in the South Georgian Bay. But I know it's been the same in places like Prince Edward County, uh, Niagara, and, and many other more smaller rural communities is, uh, you know, the conflicts between growing tourism and, of course, community members who who live here, have grown up here for generations and are seeing so much change and impact as a result. It's something that uh, I think is really important for us in the industry to pay attention to and to and to figure out how to um, how to navigate. What are you seeing from that front at the broader provincial level? And do you have any insights to share on on how we might be able to maybe bridge some of the gaps that are? I think it's it's a real issue, Andrew. And uh, my answer is not going to have as many solutions or answers as I would like it to have right now. And over the summer, I was one of those people who escaped to. Uh, a big city and, and went up north and went up the Great Peninsula and, and Blue Mountain actually as well. Uh, I'm desperately not just trying to plug you here, but yes, I was there as well. Uh, beautiful. I uh, I think I even won a round of mini golf there. <laughs> I never have. 
Never, I have never won, but I've played. The issue of over tourism and uh, is something that came up a lot last year. Uh, communities were, uh, you know, faced yeah. deluges of, of of people from out of town visiting them to just get out of the city to enjoy the fresh air to see some of the beautiful sights that we have across this province. And you know, there were some pretty awful examples of sanitation issues, uh, overfishing, uh, you know, car parking, all those. I don't want to call them unsexy issues, but issues that really you know, quite frankly, upset, yeah, quite frankly, upset the members of the community that live there. And, you know, one of the things that I always knew as a, as a councillor was that that tiny issue that might not seem as a huge thing to you that's been brought to you by an individual might not feel big to out the outside world, but to them, it's their entire world. And sometimes these small changes can make such a terrible effect on their quality of life. And so I know that we've been working with a lot of uh, local government to help them with simple things like signage, uh, simple things about increasing capacity, trying to get grants and funding in to support those communities and, and be able to, you know, be ready for what I think, again, is going to be a similar sort of summer, especially in the early parts of the summer period. And um, all I would ask, yeah. and you know, you brought up empathy, Andrew, which was a really uh, nice way to discuss the issue that we were discussing before, but it's empathy for the people and the communities that you're entering. And I know uh, that the minister is aware of this, Minister McLeod, again, she's on the ball on this issue. And as part of the marketing programs, the communication that she's going to be doing as part of uh, getting out into the community uh, when the restrictions are lifted, that I know that she's going to be doing, uh, that's something that she's going to be talking to and we're supportive of that. Um, we're going to be trying to help on as as, as as big a practical level as possible but it's that combination of empathy increasing capacity supporting communities with the infrastructure to to to, to welcome these people because Tourism brings increased infrastructure. It brings investments into the community. It brings new jobs. And for some of these areas that are experiencing an increased level of tourism, we've got to get on the ball and help them support that. And so one of the uh, important pillars of the uh, the next round of uh, funding to the uh, regional development agencies via the federal budget is going to be about money to support businesses mm-hmm. and communities grow and expand and what i'm saying to the federal government is that has to really uh, address this issue of over tourism and, and capacity issues and so that's why i'm spending a lot of my time on it at the moment as well as working with council officials uh, to get themselves ready i think last year it was a bit yeah. of a shock uh, but also it's a marketing it's an education issue and it's also to be quite frank if these communities in the long term are going to experience these growths in tourism then we've got to follow up with the infrastructure to support them because the benefits are going to be huge those to those communities but they've got to be done in an equitable uh, way and you've got to bring the community with you rather than just uh, uh you know, pushing it onto them so i'm sorry that's not a great answer but it's something that's definitely on our agenda i think you're right on with that i think this past year was certainly a tipping point 2019 was a tipping point actually in terms of visitation and, and volumes but covid19 i think really brought it home because there was there were more dynamics at play, particularly up here where we had people deciding to move here or shelter in place here. So our growth wasn't just tourism. It was actually sort of a, a, an urban flight and a rural, you know, a, a flocking to the rural communities for a number of fronts. But it's something that I, I personally am grappling with. I'm trying to understand and I want to make sure that we do everything we can to support our industry's growth, but also to make sure that we are enhancing the community. I think there's a number of things we can do. The infrastructure, you know, I when I was uh, part of the, the delegation at Queen's Park virtually, was chatting with our colleague who works in Northern Ontario. 
And he mentioned that, you know, there are, there's lots of capacity for visitors yeah. rather than crowding other areas to go visit there, but there's critical infrastructure missing like public washrooms. And if those public washrooms were there, people would be more confident to drive on highway 1117, go to a, an outpost or a, a, a fishing camp or, or a lodge. So I think you're right. Infrastructure, while not very sexy is, is a critical part of that. And I'm also thinking about, you know, we launched something here at Blue Mountain. It was a sort of resp- visitor responsibility code. And it had a lot to do with the safety protocols. But one of the things that I know a lot of destinations are thinking about is how do we create responsible visitor codes? So we recommend things like be careful when you're on a trail, be careful not to park on someone's lawn. Uh, and I think we can play a bigger role in communicating on behalf of our community members. So I, it's something I'm I'm really thinking about, but I don't know that the industry has some uh, enough uh, you know, best practices on that. Yeah, I think you're right, Andrew. I, at the end, the back end of last year, uh, work started to start on a responsible tourism pledge. That is something that I think will be rolled out uh, fairly shortly. Um, and also, I know uh, we've certainly done some work in uh, cooperation with FedDev on um, some videos and some advertisements that are going to be based around, uh, you know, to those people who are experiencing new parts of Ontario that they've not been to, to do so in a responsible and respectful manner. And so I think you'll start to see more of that when the restrictions are lifted. I think there is still a little hesitancy to get that stuff out. I'll definitely share that information with you, but I think you're absolutely on the right lines about that framework, that pledge, whatever the language is or the terminology. It's just, you know, um, tourism can give so many benefits to our communities. It can be that economic I was going to say injection then. I'll stick with injection because that's the word of the, you know, injections are, are a key part of our future at the moment. And it can be such a huge, it can make such a huge impact. And it's, but it's just so important that we do it in a way that brings people together rather than agitates and, you know, brings, uh, you know, discourse that, that, that isn't positive because it's, it's, you know, we've mentioned it time and time again in this conversation. It's been one hell of a 15 months period. And people are exhausted mentally. You know, people, I know people have turned up at events where restrictions uh, and capacity limits mean that they can't get in. Or, you know, you know, sometimes we just leave, accidentally leave the house without our mask on and we have to go back. And so people are really ready for this to be over and people have sacrificed so much. And when we are ex- ex- able to get out of our, da- our downtown areas and, and come out and enjoy those areas, we've just got to remember that these are people's homes and communities and we've got to respect that moving forward. Yeah, well, it's nice to know that there's some some work coming to help spread the word there and communicate that and, and we'll be partners in that for sure. And I know you don't quite have a sense yet, but one of the challenges that businesses and community members, are, I think, are experiencing right now is not quite understanding yet in Ontario what the criteria may be. Is it going to be case counts? Is it going to be vaccination rates? Do you have a sense at this point or is it still is it still too early to tell or when do you think we might have clarity on that? Uh, I'm not quite sure when this is going to go out, Andrew, but I think when uh, listeners are listening to this, I think we will have had an announcement on the uh, restarting of outdoor activities, particularly sports, uh, moving forward. And I think on June 2nd, we're going to get probably the most progressive plan that we've had so far from the province on on what it anticipates the future to be. I, I think it's inevitable that it will include uh, a, a reflection of case counts like previous decisions have been based on, and also vaccinations. I think uh, the, the two come hand in hand. I'm a lot more confident that we're going to get a more fulsome summer 
than we, we had probably on the cards uh, two or three months ago as we were really spiking in numbers. Okay. You know, the sacrifices that individuals have made and operators have made uh, hopefully will be paid off in the coming weeks. Um, but I, I think it's going to be both, Andrew, because even if vaccine rate, vaccination rates are high, there's still the opportunity to have an outbreak, especially if you've only had one dose. And so I don't think the province are going to take any risks on any uh, fourth wave. But I think we're probably uh, moving forward with... Uh, with a province-wide approach moving forward rather than the sort of uh, regional approach moving forward. I think that's definitely now the, the way forward. I think they recognise that, you know, if one of your public health units is in yellow and one is in green and one is in red or grey, whatever the worst is these days, uh, people are going to travel because there's only so much time you can be cooped up at home and there's only so much time you can, you know, I've had my haircut cut many times by my wife and so uh, I can't wait for a proper haircut. So I think that... I think people are going to experience differences moving forward. I think that travel shaming that had kind of happened during that color-coded framework is going to disappear because we're all going to be on the same uh, playing field moving forward. I think we're really in the end game now, Andrew, and I think it's been an exhausting time, but I think we're so close to getting some some positive announcements. You know, the feds have been clear that 75% of one dose and 20% of two doses within the, uh, the population is probably where we're going to be need to be to... Uh, get past the fear of our health uh, systems being overrun. COVID, of course, was never about being an illness that was going to wipe out our communities. Um, it was always about a problem of if it, it transmitted so much that it could overrun our health facilities. It means that awful decisions on who gets a ventilator, et cetera, could, would have to be taken. And so, you know, the amount of people that have died through this is still tragic. Uh, but, I, you know, we, it's always been about the capacity of health services to, to fight people who have COVID. Yeah. And, you know, it would be wrong of me not to credit our incredible health workers out there and hopefully some that may be listening about all the incredible work they've done. I think the next couple of weeks are going to feel like tectonic plates are moving in terms of progress uh, in both uh, uh, forward planning, uh, but also uh, the province being a little bit easier on itself on how we're going to move from stage one, stage two and stage three, whatever the terminology may be. So watch this space, but June 2nd is an important date. That was very instructive and helpful. And, and I think our job, listeners, wh whether we are businesses, whether we're community members, employees, our job is to be ready. So that's, that's what we have to do. I want to thank you so much for carving out this time. I know how busy you are right now. As busy as you are. I know how busy you are. <laughs> we, we all are. My, my final question to you, I want to you know, say this in front of all of our, our listeners and members, is we, we truly value the work that Tayo does. It's, it's a critically important I may be biased because I'm an association guy and I've worked with the team at Tayo for many years and others, but I know the great work that you do. For those businesses listening who might not be connected, maybe if you could just you know, let them know what, why they should pay attention. Why should they uh, sign up for your e-newsletter? Why should they consider joining the association in the future? So I think, first of all, um, again, Andrew, thanks for the invitation to speak to you today. Um, you know, During this whole period, we've not talked about uh, the incredible product that we have as an industry, the mental resilience that we have as an industry, the collaboration that we have as an industry. And so it's great to be able to talk about those positive things that have happened during this crisis. Um, but what I would say is, is that in the last 14 months and now uh, in the position of CEO, uh, we are such a huge economic factor in this province that when we speak with one voice, that when we speak with the research-based recommendations and the evidence generation strategy, when we talk about what's happening on the front line in every province and the impact that could be made by our industry, people listen. 
And so one of the incredible things about this process has been seeing people join Tayo via our complimentary membership that we've done over the last uh, year or so and have their knowledge base added to our knowledge base have their innovation added to our innovation database, their resiliency stuff, their mental health uh, uh, protocols that they've been doing, the trends that they've been noticing, the members of the public they've introduced us to, the things that we can all use to increase the validity of our message, but also the impact of our message. And so what I would say to the people who maybe aren't members of Tyre or haven't heard about us, we've, we've had some successes over the last uh, year and a bit. We've had some programs that have been directly because of the work that we've been doing. Uh, We've created these great relationships with ministers from across different ministries. It's so important that as we hopefully are now in the end game of this pandemic, that we don't take our foot off the pedal, that we continue to show our importance to the economy. And we can do that by increasing our knowledge base and the issues that I spoke about earlier. And your members out there, those businesses can help us improve our message, can help us shape our message, can just make our product as an advocacy organization better. And so what I'm not asking people to do is join. I'm asking them to join and tell me everything that they think, that they believe, the solutions that they have to the problems that we face in the short term and in the long term and help not just not, you know, not just have the opportunity to rant or, or not just have the opportunity to get mm-hmm. stuff off their, uh, off their plate, but to be part of the solution. And I'm a big believer that uh, the more people who are involved in our organization, the better our solutions will be and they'll be more effective and they'll have more long-term lasting change. And uh, I know from the influx of members that we've had, we're a better organization for it. We're in a more effective organization for it. And uh, bringing our community together, the tourism industry is a community. Uh, We're unlike any other industry in our economy. And if we can bring ourselves together and share an advocacy voice, and that's not just through Tayo, that's through Tayak and other organizations, we can make a difference. And I know that's something that you champion in your community in Blue Mountain and that you have a very uh, comprehensive approach to government, advocacy, business development, membership development. But if we can do that as an industry across the entirety of Ontario, we will be unstoppable. And so that's the challenge that I've laid out to my incredible staff team, uh, to our board, and to everybody like yourself who comes and helps us with the advocacy efforts. So join and help us be part of growing our influence and our impact as an organization. Well, wonderful. Thank you. I think, you know, together we are stronger. And that's the message you're saying. And I couldn't agree with you more. The other piece that you've, you've left us with today and something that I'm really taking from our conversation is... Even if it's frustrating or challenging, let's try to find ways to be part of the solution because when we do that, the results are better. Absolutely. So thank you so much. Thanks for your time today. I wish you all uh, the luck in uh, this big uh, work that uh, you and your colleagues have ahead. And just know that uh, tourism sector up here in South Georgian Bay, we're behind you 100% and we can't wait to work with you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Blue Mountain Village Voices, a production of the Blue Mountain Village Association. For more, go to bluemountainvillage.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, 
Voice Talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.